Good evening, everybody. It's good to see everybody. Some of you again, some of you for the, for the first time. I'm glad that you were able to uh, get freed up to come on over. Delighted that we get to open up the Word of God tonight, uh, get to chop up some of Scripture, get to kind of consider um, some different thoughts. I'm going to be in Genesis. If you've got a Bible, you're going to want to turn there. I'll have some of the verses on the screen for us, but I'm going to be in the book of Genesis. You remember, uh, let's just kind of recap from yesterday because I know a bunch of you weren't here and I just want to kind of give you the, the first step that we took. And so, Nolan, I know we've had difficult times with the media here and there. That's not Nolan's fault. Beautiful. That is perfect. Thank you so much, Nolan. Uh, last night, we talked about glorifying God in the midst of difficult life contexts. In other words, we contrasted um, living like that against only praying for escape when we pray. God, please deliver me out of this situation. Then I would be happy, and when I'm happy, I can glorify you better. Rather, remaining in the situation and asking God, could, how can I glorify you here? Considering our prayers to God to provide for perseverance and endurance, to display God's glory in the midst of our ongoing difficulties. And when I say the phrase, glorifying God, that is such a Christian ease phrase. I think like when I, we say, oh yeah, I'm really trying to glorify God with my life, I think the, the non-believing world has no clue what we mean or, or why we're saying that. And so glorifying God, I think, is just simply accurately displaying God's character. Uh, some of God's character is covered in the fruit of the Spirit. You know, in the original language, the, the, you can't tell this in English is why I'm saying it. Um, the word fruit is in the singular. So all of the fruit of the Spirit are, are one tree. There's one tree growing all love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. All those different fruit are on the one tree that, that God has given to us by His Holy Spirit. So when, you know, I've heard people say before, you know, uh, God just made me this way. I'm just an angry person. I, I'm just an impatient person. I just don't find joy in things. That's fine. Perhaps that is what sin has done to you in your life. But God is recreating you, isn't he? He's recreating you by his Holy Spirit to reflect his character. And you don't just have one fruit of the Spirit that you want to choose that feels like, oh, that's comfortable. I, I can do the love part. I can do the joy part. Patience, not so much. Uh, I'm not going for that one. No, it's, it's just one thing. It's, so it's one spirit, and, and the fruit is a unified, a unified whole. Uh, I also refer you to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14 to 21, where it's quoting from Leviticus, and it says, Be holy, uh, even as your Father in heaven is holy. I am holy. You must be holy. Uh, if we are to be in the presence of God, we are to be holy. Uh, and so holiness, which we'll talk about later in, in the week, holiness, is that's a pretty high calling. That is a, an extremely, extremely difficult thing to live out. But that, that is actually probably at the core, if you thought of the most descriptive word for God, I believe that biblically you would land on holiness. It is the single most important concept in our understanding of God that exists in all of the scriptures. And so for us to know and, and wear holiness in our lives is, is crucial. 
The Apostle Paul says that before you know Christ, you are a sinner and you have a sin nature. But after you know Christ, you are a holy one, which the, we, we translate as saint, uh, a holy one. And you no longer are identified but with a sin nature. You are identified with the nature of the Spirit of God. There's a complete transformation that occurs in a human being's life. So that, that concept of glorifying God is not a, it's not a small thing. It's not just a throw-in that I'm trying to, trying to just make it sound pretty. We, we, we're talking about reflecting God's character in the midst of difficult situations and maybe considering not praying our way out of it or if we are praying for our way out of it and God is not releasing us out of that situation, maybe just saying, Lord, as long as I'm here, how can I glorify you the, in, in, in the very best way? Uh, someone pointed out to me last night, you know, Jesus did pray, you know, if this cup could pass from me, uh, but your will be done. And certainly the Apostle Paul prays to be released from jail and, and there's all kinds of, you know, bring... Uh, uh, in the Lord's Prayer, you know, bring, bring your uh, petitions to the Lord every, every single day. Ask Him for your daily bread. There's certainly petitionary prayers from things that might be lack and, and we need more of. Um, but I think we've become, we've become a people that are so just, we're just so often like we want to have a softer, gentler road. We just, we'd rather things be a little bit easier, right? I mean, if, if, uh, the, if, John the Baptist came to, to make sure that the road for Jesus, that he was bringing the mountains down low and, and, the, and the low places up high, so there was a pathway for Jesus to be able to walk. And Jesus does this in our lives as well so that we are able to walk with him on that, on that narrow road. If that is the truth, we'd rather that road be lined with trees and shade and that it would be smooth. And we'd prefer that, you know, if it hasn't been paved recently, like, oh, we don't want to be walking on rocks. We'd like, we'd like to walk on something that's like, you know, soft tender on us. Um, and I totally get it. I'm the same person. I'm the same way. But I have to say, the greatest moments that exist in the Bible do not come from the times when God's people are in the greatest comfort. The greatest Christian literature in the last 200 years has come out of the most oppressed and persecuted people. Uh, many of the people that we study and that we revere were people that were writing from a perspective uh, from, from prison, from in, in war, in, in terrible, terrible persecution. There is something about conflict and opposition in our lives, like James says, that produces perseverance and endurance. And while I would never encourage somebody, go find a really difficult situation and just, just you know, force yourself into it. Like, put yourself in really compromising positions and, and see what God does. I would never encourage anybody to do that. However, when you find yourself in those situations, I think it's a great, a great opportunity to reflect God's glory in a way that shows beauty. By the way, I have to say this because I was so impressed with the lineup um, I mean, I've already, I've already propped it. Did you know I did not know that Eric Tonis was at 
Sunday morning service this, this week when I said, uh, you know, like basically worship things about him. Um, and so when I see Eric next, I'm going to be so embarrassed. Uh, anyway, uh, er- Eric Donis uh, speaking at that creative arts uh, and Thaddeus Williams. I don't know if you know who Thaddeus Williams is. He's kind of a, he's a, a young author, philosopher, and uh, just a ph- phenomenal speaker. And um, he, he, we, we did a, in our student ministries department, we did a, uh, not we, but they uh, did a uh, curriculum that was written written by Thaddeus Williams, and it was, it was just really, really outstanding. I read, I read it while the, while the students were doing it, and uh, my daughter teaches in that department, and so um, it, was, it was really fantastic, very, very sound. And then, of course, Cherry Root is just a rock star, and so I, I don't, you know, I, I, I don't have very much creativity in my body, but I wanted to go, uh, and I just wanted to commit it to you. We go to just, we've gone to just about everything uh, here at Hume Lake. We've gone to marriage conferences, we've gone to uh, we've gone to romance conferences when they used to do those. We, we, uh, I take my daughters to the uh, father-daughter. I've taken them ever since they turned, when they allow you to, when they're eight years old. And I've taken them. My, my daughters are 24 and almost 21, and they demand that they go to that conference with me still. To this day, uh, they still want to go to that conference with me. And I'm on board, totally on board uh, to doing that. I go to the men's conferences. I speak at those and uh, that kind of stuff. And so I... We've just done so many things over the years at Hume. I cannot, don't let this be the only time that you're up here is when you're doing a family vacation, you're up in the development um, or or whatever. Man, come to Hume during during some time where you get to just get away, take a breath, and really kind of go, what's this last year been? What's the next year going to be? God, where have you taken me? Good, bad, all right? Where do we want to go? Good, bad. Probably not bad, but where do we want to go? Good, uh, as, we, as we move forward. Uh, I think there's so much value in doing that in, in our lives. Okay, enough pontificating about Hume and, uh, and yesterday and all that kind of stuff. We were reading about Joseph. Joseph, who starts out the story as this kind of bratty little snot-nosed kid uh, who's 17 years old and is a total pain in his brother's uh, butts. And so, sorry about that. Uh, and so he... He gets sold off in kind of the, you know, one of the first uh, moments of human trafficking that we can find in the scriptures, and he gets sold off to a bunch of Ishmaelites, Midianites. Remember, you know, the Jews and the Ishmaelites, like, that's not, those are not people that get along with each other. So his brothers are not selling him into, you know, a group of people that were pleasant for him. And then they get further down road, and they sell him off to Egypt, and he ends up in Potiphar's house, and, and then Potiphar's wife tries to hit on him, and he runs, and, and Joseph ends up in jail, and then they're, you know, the, the cupbearer and, and the baker are having these dreams, and the cupbearer is preserved, and what did he tell the cupbearer? Remember me when you are lifted back up. And the cupbearer, of course, totally forgot him. Cupbearer was so excited to be back with in Pharaoh's court, he he completely blanked out and and forgot about Joseph completely. And and of course the baker gets killed, and so he's of no use. And so now Joseph has has been in jail for two years since those events have happened, as we hit uh, Genesis chapter 41. Genesis chapter 41 begins with a dream. From Pharaoh. Most of you know this dream. 
the cows, the corn, the eating, the consuming, and he repeats the dream later. So I'm not going to read the dream as it starts. I'm going to start reading right around verse 14, and I'll just read off the screen. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, because he heard that he could interpret dreams, because the cupbearer suddenly had memory. And they quickly brought him out of the pit that he was in. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, because you had to look appropriate uh, in those days uh, for Pharaoh, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Pharaoh completely ignores He could care less. He just wants an answer for his dream. Pharaoh said to Joseph, behold, in my dream, so on and so forth, I told it to the magicians. I'm jumping to verse 24 now, if you are following in the text. Uh, Verse 24, uh, I, I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. And then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that come up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. Seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that this thing is fixed by God, and God will be shortly bringing it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man. You can, just see, you can just see Joseph stand up a little bit, you know, right here. Let him pick a discerning and wise man who knows what he's talking about, unlike the rest of the court, um, and set him over the land of Egypt. So why is this passage so significant and so important? Here's why. Up to this point, the name of God has been mentioned from, from the time that we meet Joseph back in, what is it, chapter 38, 37, yeah, 37. Um, back in chapter 37, God's name has been mentioned significantly in the story one time. When he says to Potiphar's wife, uh, I cannot, I'm, I'm not going to sin against God in, in this way when he's trying to get her away. God is mentioned one time in jail. He says, uh, you know, God... God gives interpretation of the dreams, and then he says, tell it to me, and then God is never mentioned again. That's the only mentions of God that occur in all of the Joseph story up until this moment. But from here forward, now don't get me wrong, the name of God, Yahweh, the Lord, is used by the writer of the text, and it's, there's, there's two different names, right? Yahweh is the name of God that the Jews used, and Elohim is the name that that we use commonly for God in in the Old Testament. So the writer says Joseph uh, was in Potiphar's house and the Lord brought, brought a great amount of plenty to Potiphar and his household because Joseph was there. But does Joseph say anything about God? No. Is Joseph the one that is oriented towards God? Not really. 
Joseph seems to be fairly silent. Even though God is gifted, even though God blesses him, even though God is pouring out his presence around him, Joseph's kind of quiet about it. Joseph doesn't really, doesn't really approach his dreams in a way that says, I see that this is not me. Do you remember how he used the dreams with his brothers and his parents? He, he used them to kind of get a false sense of authority. And he was only 17, 18, maybe 20 years old at the time. Do you, do you remember when he was talking to the baker and to the cupbearer? When he talked to them, he said, yeah, God gives interpretation of dreams. Give it to me. I'll let you know. And he's, God's not mentioned again. Now we hit this, after that two-year period, we hit this story with Pharaoh. And Joseph mentions the name of God nine times to Pharaoh in just this little section that I just read. It is, if, if you were reading the text and you're reading it carefully and you're looking for the author of the story, who is God, and you're really looking for where is God in the midst of this story, you would be shocked at how absent he was at the beginning of it and you would be stunned at how much he's mentioned right when it picks up in chapter 41. There's a huge difference. In fact, if you include direct and indirect addresses to God by Joseph, he's mentioned 11 times in this little section. He just mentions him as he a couple of times, but he's still referring, referring to God. He has changed. He's different. Joseph is now useful in God's hands, and God brings him up out of the pit, and he sets him on solid ground. Joseph rises to power later on in this same chapter, and when we come down to verse 50 of chapter 41, it says, before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. I should back up. I'm just going to give you a quick little context verse here, verse 45. Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zapath-Paneah, and he gave him a marriage to Asenath. And if you break that name down, Asenath, it, it it's, uh, has to do with the sun god uh, of, of Egypt, which was one of the more uh, venerated gods. I mean, Egypt had, you know hundreds of gods, but this is one of the biggies. And so um, he was married to somebody that was probably of a royal family that was part of that whole, uh, part, of, part of the whole worship of the, of the, the priests and priestess that, that worship the sun god. And so he's getting married to a pretty important girl um, and the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Now you jump down to verse 50. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Uh, Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, the priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. Manasseh. For, he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. If you looked at the Hebrew word for forget, it would be Manas. So his son's name is Manasseh. And forget means Manas. And so what does he think of when he calls to his son? God, you've helped me to forget the past. The name of the second is called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. And the word for fruit is uh, Phraya or Ephraya. Uh, and so same thing. Every time he calls to Ephraim, what does he think about? God has made me fruitful. So God has helped me to forget, and God has made me fruitful. Get this kid who was such a punk 13 years earlier, is now 30 years old. He is second in command in all of Egypt. 
And there's so much of a backstory to this and so much of a backstory to all of the names that are here. There was a unique time in Egyptian history called the Hyksos period of time. And all of the names and all of the, um, all of the areas that, that, that rulership was happening during this time are consistent with this story that is here. It's such an oddity, isn't it? That Joseph is so exalted in Egypt, and he has so much authority, and Pharaoh's going to give him a ton of land that is in the, the most prosperous area of all of Egypt. I mean, jo- it says that, that Joseph's family multiplies and multiplies and multiplies, and it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and then you go to the Exodus, and what happens? A Pharaoh comes along that does not know Joseph, that is not familiar with him. How is that even possible? That's like like somebody coming into the presidency and not knowing who George Washington is or Abraham Lincoln or some other famous president from the past, like not understanding the history. But if you look at this one little period in Egyptian history, part of their kingdom was taken over by this Hyksos group for several hundred years. But right after the end of it, a new pharaoh comes into power who eliminated the Hyksos and would have had no knowledge, no knowledge whatsoever of the Jews. I mean, when you see how this lines up in history, when you see the beauty and the wonder and the, just the way that God gives us every possible clue of the authenticity and the value and, and the way that he, he sets himself over history and works in the midst of chaos to bring about the gospel, that the gospel is kept alive by God, that red thread that runs from the very beginning through the very end, that God keeps that alive in the craziest of circumstances. You're reading a story where sin has dominance on the earth Satan is the, this is the kingdom that he controls. And how does God decide that he's going to make, you know, do a full frontal attack on sin in the world? He plants a garden and puts two naked people in there. That's, that is preposterous. That is the dumbest thing that anybody, like that's something that nobody would ever come up with. If you had all the power in the universe, what would you do? I, I know what I would do. I, I, I would crush and destroy and wipe out. Sometimes we even ask ourselves why. Why doesn't God just crush and destroy and wipe out? Sin and pain and agony and all those things. It gives you a little window into those temptations of Christ, doesn't it? When he said he took him up to the pinnacle, high over all the kingdoms of the world, and showed Jesus all of the pain, all of the people, all of the wickedness that they would have to endure. If you'll just bow down to me, none of them will suffer. Sometimes we just discount these things as though they were nothing. This story, I just can't, I cannot commend it to you enough. I cannot be excited enough about it. And I cannot emphasize enough how important it is that as you read that you, that you see Christ in the midst of it, that you, that you 
see that when the gospel is preserved, that, that this is the thread that leads to the cross. And sometimes the gospel is preserved in ways that I, I don't get, I don't understand. It's, it's preserved through prostitutes and it's preserved through people that, that you just, you, you don't, we don't really understand. We don't even know if, if they belong in, if they belonged in the kingdom of heaven or if they are going to be in the kingdom of heaven. But God preserves the thread of the gospel all the way to Jesus Christ and now through all of us. And, and he's, he's done so sometimes in violent ways that we don't understand. Sometimes in ways that are compassionate to people that, that we wonder why, why would God be compassionate with those people. Sometimes you could read some of this and, and think to yourself, I, I don't know that I want to follow a God that would do something like that. Well, I got, I got to say, every one of those moments are when God is preserving the gospel. Every one of those moments are when Jesus is in the midst of the story and his life is being kept alive for you and for me. And he does so in such extraordinary, miraculous, and fantastic ways. Like he plants a garden, puts two naked people in it, and then the apex of all redemption in the human universe, he sends a baby. Right? Like think about that verse that Paul says that when I am weak, then I am strong. Like God is living that out, apparently. Apparently God's glory is most magnificent when it's worked out in the weakest of ways. So when the New Testament says that God has chosen the base things, the foolish things, the stupid things, the idiotic things, not quite that vivid, but um, when he's chosen those things to display his glory Make sure you look in the mirror and go, that's me. <laughs> that's you and me. We're the same as Adam and Eve in that garden. Just walking around. Conquerors of the gates of hell. By the power of God. But could you, could you feel any less adequate, any less equipped to be able to take that? to take that on? I hope you answer yes. So the story moves forward with Joseph, after that little segue. The story moves forward with Joseph. The famine hits. Joseph's brothers show up. Uh, there's all this you know, commotion back and forth, sending him back without one, one brother, and, and, and then you know, putting all their money back into their sacks and, and all of the grain, and the father freaks out, and he's like, we're all going to die. And then, you know, they find out that, uh, you know, Joseph tells them who he is and, and bring your family to Egypt, and, and Pharaoh blesses, and he's really excited and gives them all this wonderful land, and it comes down to the very end of the story, and we find in Genesis chapter 50, Joseph says, do not fear to his brothers, for, I, for am I in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So I have to ask you, 
since I don't think any of you were sold by your siblings into human trafficking and slavery, most of us that are here have not experienced that kind of wickedness um, in, our, in our own lives. Um, and I loved, I loved what, what you shared earlier about uh, the anger that you felt over, for a year and a half over the way that the landlord treated, treated you um, when you were um, selling your business. I bet you a lot of us could tell, tell stories like that. I bet you a lot of us might even be walking right now, right here today in stories like that. Some of you have been on summer staff and you've been living here all summer and there are people that you love and that you adore and that you remember forever and there are people that after next Friday you hope you never have to see again. Um, there are people that live next door to neighbors that they, that they thoroughly dislike. There are those of us that get behind the wheel of a car and, and we automatically turn into lunatics. Everybody is an idiot. Everybody around us doesn't know how to drive. Who let these people into California? Don't they know they're here and they should drive better? I'm, I'm guilty of those kinds of things for sure. I, I live in Southern California where everybody drives, pedal to the metal all the time, and I get out there on the road, and you know what the most revealing part was? <laughs> when you have kids, and then they sit in the back seat when they're just a little bit older, and you have to slow down real quick, and you hear them, Psh, what's that moron doing? What's that, what's that guy doing? Like, why is he driving like that? Why is he putting on his brakes? Nobody's putting on his brakes in front of him, and you realize they're just parroting you. That's quite revealing. I, I uh, bought a book by um, a guy named, uh, I think it's Brant, Brant uh, Hansen. Uh, it's called Unoffendable. Have, you, have any of you heard about Unoffendable? I recommend it highly. The second chapter is Everybody's an Idiot. I knew it was my kind of book, right? Um, and so, but he, he uh, after studying the scriptures and really kind of unpacking all of these stories, he notices that people that are followers of God do not possess the right to, to be angry. He, he, he maintains that our, our anger leads to destruction. In fact, every mention of anger in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament is negative. And it's always associated with foolishness. Anger is one of those go-to emotions that a lot of us have when things don't go right around us. We sometimes protect people that are weaker, and we get angry in order to do it. So we sometimes get angry with our kids, so they'll do things. Get angry with our spouses, get angry with our boyfriends, girlfriends, friends, whatever. We get angry in different situations. Sometimes we get angry when we're all by ourselves in a car following somebody that doesn't know how to drive and all that kind of stuff, right? We feel some sense of control, some sense of I have the right to take hold of anger. And a lot of it comes, right, from the Bible, we think. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25 
Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. If you've not read chapter 4, it starts with the seven ones, the complete oneness of all of us in God, under Christ, by the Spirit, in the body, blah, 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 blah. It's like a nesting doll of things. And by the time we get to the end, it's talking about how we behave with each other in the church. How do we behave with one another as Christians? So how do you do that? You put away falsehood. We speak the truth. Because we belong to each other. And when one lies, it affects the whole body. Be angry and do not sin. Well, doesn't that seem like permission? Doesn't that strike? That's not what it means. It says that you're human. You're going to get angry. Things are going to happen. You're going to be mad. You're going you're to feel like you have the right to hold on to this. But do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal. Rather, let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anybody that is in need. In other words, you, you don't even work for yourself. You're, you're working for others. Let no corrupting talk, we read this last night, come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, constructive words, not destructive words, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And how could you do that? Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Do, 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 for that little kid song. Um, have you read that whole section in its context? In no way should that give you the impression that it's okay to hold on to your anger. In fact, I would invite you, as Brent Hansen does, to truly be unoffendable. I, I chose that picture because I think a lot of us think, no way. I'm allowed to be angry. I can hold on to it like for a little bit. What if I use it for constructive purposes? The Bible doesn't have any constructive purposes for your anger. Anger is only constructive when it is in the hands of God himself. When it's in the hands of the Holy One, Jesus Christ. That's it. Everybody else is told to put it away, to get rid of it, to let go of it. And I think people, like when I started reading that book, Unoffendable, like just choose to not be offended. Choose to not be angry. Choose to not hold it against another person. Let it go. I choose to not be offended, Brian Hansen writes. I'm not entitled to my anger against them. And I'm not entitled to think I'm entitled to my anger. I'm not even entitled to think that I should be entitled to be an angry person. We want to follow the gospel wherever it takes us. God has a way for us to live. A humility that he's called us to. And it's the way we humans happen to really flourish. It's how you will flourish it's time. Let it go. The story of Joseph reminds me that between the ages of 17, 18 to about 30, Joseph was put into the crucible of God's, of God's teaching, of God's professorship in his life. Joseph had to be ground down in that crucible until his life counted for one thing and one thing only, and that was God. 
to where all the credit for all the giftedness, for all the good things that came out of Joseph belonged to God. How does this work itself out in our lives? Because I doubt that you are the second in command to Pharaoh these days, right? And so how does this work itself out in our lives? I think it works itself out in the timeless truth that is true in Joseph's life. He chose to no longer hold the resentment. Remember the resentment that he held about being thrown into the pit, about being thrown into jail, about his brothers and what they had done to him? That's part of the narrative when God's name is not in the story. But once God's name comes into the story, all of a sudden, there's freedom and there's redemption and there's change. Now, I don't think this is an overnight process, but I think sometimes in our heads, we come to the place where we go, wait, I, do, I, I get offended by things. I, I get mad when things aren't the way they're supposed to be. I get, I get agitated when... You know, I walk into the kitchen and, and, you know, somebody, one of my biggest fights with Melinda when we first got married was that she loads the dishwasher wrong. She, she put, <laughs> married people are like, oh my gosh, we've done that too. Um, like she puts forks pointing up and I just think like, I'm going to stab myself, right? Knives pointing up. And so like my parents taught me how to load them down. And I that was just like, Jesus loaded his dishwasher down and you should too kind of thing. And so like we got into it over it. And I tell, in, when I do premarital with couples, I tell them all the time, it's not about the dishes. It's about what you are holding on to and what you think you have the right to hold on to. Are you sacrificing? Are you, are you living out Christ in the midst of your relationships? Or are you holding on to things that you think, I have the right to hold on to these things? I have the right to be angry. I have the right to say what I want to say. I have the right to assert this or that. Is, is that what Joseph learns and is that how Jesus lived? Just imagine, as we live out this life and we live in a way that says, you know, the way you're treating me is not fair. I'm, I'm mad because you cut me off on the freeway. It's not fair. My kids are in the car. You could kill us. Or whatever it is that we tell ourselves. Um, someone takes cuts in line. Should you just not say anything? Should you just be this, you know, diminutive, like, okay, I'm just going to let it go. I'm going to let it slide. I'm just going to keep, you know, taking this abuse. No, it's, it's fine. But asserting ourselves with anger, that's not fine. Think about it. I love, Brant Hansen wrote this in his uh, book, Unoffendable, as well. He says, think about it. If anger is what drives your justice, if that's what's really driving your justice, then what you're saying is police officers would be at their very best when they're mad. Does anybody want that? No, we all know that the best police officers are the ones that stay calm, that are unoffendable, that allow the situation to not, they're not pouring gasoline on it, they're pouring water onto it. They don't want a bigger fire, they want a smaller fire. Do we want soldiers that are angry? No. We want clear-headedness. Good decisions are not made when we are angry people. And I could use a lot of different emotions. I could 
takes us in a lot of different directions. I use anger because it's just so common to man. What if, what if we became people that were unoffendable, that didn't, that didn't think that our perceived right to be angry or to isolate somebody or to say, I can't be around you, rejection? Like, what if we treated them the way that Jesus treats us? Because that's clearly what the Scriptures ask us to do. We are clearly asked in the Scriptures, if God has forgiven you of everything, if he's forgiven you not only of everything you've ever done, but everything that you're going to do because God exists outside of time and he sees you on the tapestry of the universe, if God knows every little thing about you, the Bible says that God knows you better than you know yourself, that the human heart actually lies to itself and tries to make itself think that it knows what's going on even when it doesn't. Do you know your own heart? The Bible says you don't. Does God know your own heart? The Bible says he does. So when God says that he's forgiven you for all of it, even when you couldn't do anything to free yourself from sin, and that you should go now and treat others that way, which is exactly what we see Joseph do. He has every opportunity to just smack his brothers with an elbow, just throw them in jail and, and, and make their lives miserable for six months, just get them back for what they did. And never once does he do it. Why? Because the name of God has become the most important part of Joseph's life. This takes on even greater meaning and greater value as we get into the Exodus. It becomes even more vivid and more extraordinary. It says that Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians, it says that Jesus Christ was the rock that they drank water out of throughout their time in the desert. It says in Jude that we already know this, but I just want to remind you, Jesus Christ released, released a group that came through Egypt. Is, would you ever understand that from reading the Old Testament? I wouldn't. I could never see that it was Jesus that was doing all those things. Jesus is the one that's with Joseph. Jesus is the one that guides him into a place of letting go of his anger so that he would be released to worship and live for God. And you and I are called, commanded, compelled, and loved into the same life. And I really do believe that in our context, it begins with recognizing that we don't have the right to be offended. We don't have the right to be angry. That's not something that God wants us to hold on to. He knows we're going to get angry. He knows there's going to be malice in our lives. He knows that we get bitterness, wrath, and anger, and all these things. He knows that if we live in a sinful world, sinful things are going to come to us and through us and around us. It's going to splash us and all that other stuff. And he says, let it go. Put it away from you. Release it. 
talk it out, do whatever you, but get rid of it. Can it take a year and a half? Yeah. How long did it take you? Like, it took years, right, for you to get over a situation that you ran into where someone really, really hurt you badly. I, I get it. Some of you came up through families that were abusive. I get it. Choose. Choose because God chose you to not be offended by it and to move through it, to learn in whatever means you need to and for how, however long it takes, move through that so that you are able to extend the grace of God in every aspect of your life, to every person in your life, even the ones that abuse you, even the ones that have sold you into slavery. I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty bad. And we'll get to see this and the story that it comes from even more vividly with Esther tomorrow night. These are my encouragements to you, and I hope you walk out, you know, troubled, thinking about things. It's like, yeah, yeah, but, yeah, but what about this? Take it to the Scriptures, please, 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 please. Talk to each other. Take it to the Scriptures. Let's be people of God's Word, and let's allow the gospel, that red thread, let's let it run through our heart and take us over and consume our souls. That's why God's got you up here, Hugh. He wants to be the consuming fire in the midst of your soul. God, thank you. You are a blessing. And God, I, we, we fully embrace that we, we desire deeply in our hearts to worship you, to love you, but we could be a curse to other people because we feel that we have the right and we are so wrong. And so, God, I pray that you would lift us up out of the, the mire, out of the pit, and that you'd set our feet on solid ground. God, do what you've done long before Isaiah 40 and long after. Transform us, change us, renew our minds. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.